Was the Freedom Convoy a threat to public safety when it occupied downtown Ottawa earlier this year? Was the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act justified? Did Ottawa drop the ball in planning for the convoy's arrival? These are just some of the questions arising from six weeks of testimony before the Public Order Emergency Commission and Justice Paul Rouleau. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. In the first of a special two-part episode, National Post political reporters Chris Nardi and Ryan Tumulty join me to discuss what the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act looked at, how it showed how unprepared police were to handle the convoy, and what that lack of preparedness meant in the overall response to the occupation. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Ryan and Chris, both of you just sat through six weeks of testimony relating to the federal government invoking the Emergencies Act. This all stems from the so-called Freedom Convoy that descended on Ottawa earlier this year. For those who have forgotten or who have chosen to block out that period of this year from their memory, what led to the existence of the convoy that sparked this whole kerfuffle? Chris, we'll start with you on this one. Um, well, so there are many sources, and I, I don't think anyone would say, but by the end, the Freedom Convoy was united under a single cause, quite frankly. Um, but generally, the, the the spark of it all was a vaccine mandate for truckers, uh, interprovincial notably, uh, sorry, international, uh, which made it that truckers who were not fully vaccinated or double vaxxed at the time uh, were not able to cross into the United States and vice versa. The United States had a similar um, mandate as well. And so that sparked the ire of um, a group of truckers, basically, who decided to start kind of organizing with, um, you know, a few other elements, uh, you know, influencers of sorts online. And uh, and these Freedom Convoy kind of small groups started popping up across the country, so in BC and Alberta. And, and eventually this convoy, um, as it converged towards Ottawa and kind of gained speed, gained vehicles, um, became really an, an amalgamy of causes and, and people who were frustrated at a variety of COVID-related uh, measures and ultimately just anti-government sentiment. Now, Ryan, as this relates to the Emergencies Act itself, how long did the convoy situate itself there before the government invoked the act? So the convoy had done basically three weekends uh, before the federal government invoked the act. Uh, it did so, and then it was on the fourth weekend uh, with these Emergency Act powers that the police uh, cleared out the convoy protesters from a, a really large swath of Ottawa, you know, not something that always appeared on television, but it was more than just one street in front of Parliament Hill. It was a, a big chunk of the downtown. So we have a number of weeks that the convoy supporters had set up camp. And as, as many people recall, there were complaints from residents about honking in motors and harassment and complaints from businesses. But Ryan, what did we hear during the inquiry about what life was like for these people and these businesses during that time? You know, we heard it from, the, the, interestingly, actually, the commission didn't focus that much on uh, residents here in Ottawa. We actually only heard from two people uh, and a couple of business groups uh, sort of on the first or second day of testimony. You know, by contrast, we heard from the convoy leaders for almost a week, but 
uh, you know, those people who lived here talked about the noise, the constant uh, engines running, horns blaring, um, things like that. Obviously, you know, we know from businesses that were closed throughout that time. The Rideau Center, which is a huge mall here, was closed for that entire three week period. So we certainly heard, you know, as well from city councilors that it just it had a massive impact on on people's lives here. Mm-hmm. And in the early days of this occupation, it was it was viewed as as essentially a matter for local law enforcement. But did we get a sense from testimony that Ottawa police knew what to do with this group, Chris? <laughs> they thought they did, um, but they were tremendously wrong. Um, so, you know, the testimony that we heard throughout the uh, hearings and particularly during the moments when police uh, leaders were testifying was that from the beginning, the Ottawa Police Service uh, was absolutely convinced that this was just a weekend event. So protesters would arrive on Friday, January 28th. They would set up shop for a weekend. And by Sunday, they would all be gone. There might be a couple stragglers that, you know, they thought could stay up until maybe the following Wednesday. And that was it. There was, uh, you know, a a regular old protest like Ottawa, you know, the nation's capital is used to. Um, And what... What um, the police quickly found out, and I mean quickly, you know, former police chief Peter Slowly said the Saturday, you know, within hours of looking at all these trucks set up on core downtown streets, especially the one right in front of Parliament, so Wellington, um, he realized they were going nowhere and that they had really messed up their interpretation. He called it an intelligence, you know, failure by other agencies. Um Though we did see information that was being sent to them by the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, that did warn that this was setting up to be a long-term protest. Um, and so in many ways, the Ottawa Police Service was caught completely off guard, really only planned for a traffic event. And their whole, you know, we saw their um, event management plan and it was just a traffic event. And so when this, you know, blockade basically of downtown Ottawa began, they were really poorly prepared for it and already in a situation of disarray internally, lack of staff, leadership problems, ton of rollover, a lot of infighting. It was kind of the perfect storm really for the Freedom Convoy members when they came in to take full benefit of a police force that was just not ready to deal with them. So uh, Ottawa police weren't necessarily confident they could deal with this on their own. Were they looking to other levels of government to step in and help them out? Absolutely. So they were reaching out to OPP, they were reaching out to the RCMP, they were looking for a lot of extra officers, sort of after they realized their mistake, after everyone was very firmly entrenched, uh, that's when they started reaching out. Um, and they reached out you know, to Queen's Park, uh, to the Ford government, to really everywhere trying to get more resources and more bodies to police this protest and bring it to an end. Um, Certainly what we heard during the inquiry was that the police forces who were being asked to provide help were very uh, reluctant to do so because they didn't see the Ottawa police as having a plan as to what to do with those resources once they got them. You know, there was just this demand for more cops without a real plan on how you would use them to bring the protest to an end. Uh, And that certainly seems to have been a sticking point. And of course, you know, for both the OPP and the RCMP, there were demands elsewhere. There was the uh, blockade of the Coots border crossing in Alberta. Uh, later on, there would be the, you know, tremendously economically damaging blockade at the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor. So 
you know, when they were being asked to provide more police for, uh, resources, you know, they, they needed to really clearly understand how they were going to be used. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm curious about this kind of back and forth regarding auto police and DOPP and the RCMP, Chris. You know, normally you have police forces manage collaboration in this country reasonably well. It doesn't always go perfectly, but they they do tend to get along. But that doesn't seem like it was the case here. Like, What was going on behind the scenes with this kind of back and forth between OPS and OPP and RCMP? There was a lot of frustration about the leadership of then police chief Peter Slowly. Um, and, and you could tell that when Peter Slowly, so Peter Slowly exceptionally was the only witness that actually testified for two whole days during the commission. And, you know, what you noticed was a man who was sometimes combative, sometimes he was emotional, talking about the difficulty, uh, difficulties that his his employees faced. But he was always extremely defensive. And I can very, there's a world in which I can very easily imagine that's how he was also acting with police partners. Because to him, it was incredibly clear from the start, there was no chance and no scenario in which he would relinquish power because, you know, the Ottawa Police Service is the what we call the police of jurisdiction in Ottawa. And there was no world in which he relinquished that responsibility to other police forces um, in the province or at the federal level. Um, and it, it, even though he was asking them for really a tremendous amount of resources, 1,800 new, um, not just officers, but, you know, uh, resource, people, um, resources, ultimately actually got 2,200 of them. That was what was required to clear out the streets three and a half weeks after that or three weeks after the convoy began. But, um, you know, it was very a strong headedness. And so behind the scenes, we would see uh, text messages, for example, from RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky saying, oh, man, the federal government is losing complete confidence in Peter Slowly. We saw a text message from Attorney General Justice Minister David Lametti um, texting another minister saying Slowly is incompetent. You had even the OPP commissioner, Thomas Kareek, who generally was relatively stoic and, and throughout the process. Um, even he was saying that the plan that we're getting, the OPP on documents were assessing that the plans that the Ottawa Police Service were designing to get rid of protesters were poor. They weren't intelligence driven. They were really weak plans. So, um, you know, you got the sense that the OPS Tremendous leadership issues internally, lots of turnover. Um, you had Peter Slowly, who was just very insistent on keeping that job and, and was seemingly very little interest in outside input and really fighting to keep the reins on his organization and this operation and creating tensions with police partners. And, you know, the proof is kind of in the pudding when you consider that the day or two after he left, like a lot of things happened, a lot of dominoes fell, but the day or two after he left, plans kicked in, uh, other forces started sending in resources, and within days, everything was gone. Yeah. And I can't imagine that, you know, as as we know, P- Peter Slowly, no longer the chief of Ottawa police, the, the chair of the police board also left as well. After this, you know, I can't imagine that this really helped foster the relationship between police in Ottawa and Ottawa's city council. Ryan, do we get a sense from from the inquiry ab- about that relationship and about the dealings between OPS and city council? Yeah, certainly we did and I don't I don't think you would describe them as good. Certainly there was a lot of, you know, back and forth between the mayor's office and the chief of police. The mayor didn't sit on the police board, so we couldn't directly influence things there. 
Um, but, you know, I'll give you an example, you know, towards the end of the convoy before the Emergencies Act was uh, invoked, the mayor of Ottawa negotiated a deal with one of the convoy organizers to move trucks out of residential neighborhoods and closer to Parliament Hill. Um, and putting aside the uh, whether or not that was a good idea, certainly what we heard in testimony is that Peter Slowly, the chief of police, only found out about that deal after it had been made. And certainly you can see that there was a, a need for dialogue that wasn't happening. Um, and certainly a lot of skepticism from city council about whether or not this could actually be brought to an end. We'll be right back. Ultimately, this, this inquiry is looking into the, the whether the use of the Emergencies Act was justified and the federal government said it was to address threats to our security. You know, initially, Ottawa police was looking at this as a traffic incident. Did did we get a sense that that local or even provincial police viewed this as a broader threat as things went on? Um, yes. Um, I mean, the police really looked at it at a police perspective, right? There was certainly huge concerns for local police here and police who were observing um, Freedom Convoy protests across Canada uh, about what was amongst the protesters that they didn't know about. Like, for example, in Coots, Alberta, at the border blockade there, um, there was a, a suspicion for a while that there were weapons. Then obviously we know there was a sting operation that involved two undercover cops that joined the convoy there to discover that there was, in fact, a quite significant cache of weapons amongst the protesters. Um, and there was also suspicions and fears in Ottawa that in the big rigs and in the vehicles that were here downtown, there were weapons. So throughout the testimony, one of the main kind of messages that came through from a variety of authorities was we knew what we, the threats that we knew, but another huge threat for us was what we didn't know was happening, right? Um, we didn't know if there were weapons. We didn't know if they were planning other protests across the country. We didn't know if there was potentially going to be more bridge blockades and the huge economic impact that that would create, right? And so police, you know, as I mentioned, you know, Ottawa Police Service knew almost from day one that you know, the resources that they had were going to be insufficient to the task. And so that was obviously a huge concern. It was also a, a huge, you know, they were noting the concern from citizens that were, that laws do not feel like they are being enforced within that red zone around parliament where, uh, where, where convoy protests were happening. So ultimately, yes, th there was police had concerns about, you know, the threat level. Uh, obviously, they're not the ones to make a determination if there was a threat to the national security of Canada. Uh, that's a cabinet decision as well probably get into it as part of the Emergencies Act, but uh, they certainly were you know, fearful of this. They were fearful of what they didn't know. And they, uh, and they knew that it was a much larger, you know, event than just a, a peaceful protest as the protesters would say. Now, one of the key pieces to, to what was going on at, at the time, I, I understand that there were kind of accusations that the, the province didn't do enough to help Ottawa police. And, and ultimately Premier Doug Ford didn't testify at the inquiry. Ryan, do do we know what it was that he would have been asked about had he appeared uh, and, you know, what they would have wanted to find out from him? Oh, I, I can think of a lot of things. I guess how much time do you have? <laughs> um, I'm sure there would have been questions about the OPP's response and whether or not he encouraged, you know, them to come to Ottawa sooner, how he viewed the protest. Certainly, uh, you know, Premier Ford got much more involved in this after the Ambassador Bridge was closed. 
which we talked about as being an economics, you know, huge economic impact. We know tensions between the federal government and the Ford government are relatively high. We can see the, at least the federal government side of those conversations in which they are very, you know, the Ford government appears to consider this an Ottawa problem because it is being, it is a federal government mandate that the people are protesting. They are people are protesting, you know, outside of Parliament Hill. But, you know, the federal government's jurisdiction ends at the Parliament Hill gates. They don't have control over Wellington Street that runs right in front of the House of Commons. That is a city responsibility and a provincial responsibility, first and foremost. So I think that's the kind of questions that Doug Ford would have been asked about uh, had he elected to uh, attend and to testify. Certainly, there was a lot of concern that, you know, he here in Ottawa, there was a lot of concern that he viewed this as Ottawa's problem and not something he wanted to get involved in. Now, Chris, you know, despite him not testifying, did we get some of those answers to to some of those questions, even even without the premier himself taking the the stand? Well, they put they put as many of those you know political questions they could to the the highest ranking bureaucrat that testified, who was uh, Deputy Solicitor General Mario Di Tommaso. Um, but understandably, he couldn't answer to those questions. Right? There were you know certain questions about calls between, for example, then Solicitor General Sylvia Jones uh, and 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 members of the federal government, or even you know Premier Doug Ford and members of the federal government, and where he was you know Di Tommaso was asked, well, what was said, or what do you think was said. And he wasn't there. He has no idea. Right. Um, And so, you know, we we do know through exchanges and emails that were sent between commission uh, lawyers and uh, provincial government lawyers that they did have a lot of questions for Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones that they specifically thought only those two could answer. One of them being, why did you wait so long to enact provincial emergency legislation uh, powers that most uh, local police said was ultimately what they used or they relied on more when uh, clearing out Freedom Convoy protests than they did the federal ones. So uh, I, I don't think, no, I think that'll be uh, a whole, um, you know, in emails, we did see commission lawyers warn that unfortunately we do believe that if the Doug Ford or Sylvia Jones don't testify, uh, there will be kind of a missing piece to our report. I think they'll be able to go around it. I do think that, you know, federal and municipal uh, authorities were able to provide uh, a lot of the the, the, the the enlightenment that we were looking for about the province's role. Uh, but there's also relatively easy to re- imagine a scenario where Commissioner Paul Rulo um, is frustrated against Ontario in his report and expresses a certain level of frustration about the lack of testimony. And ultimately, uh, what seemed to come through all the testimony was a lack of interest in dealing with this problem that they really hoped would become and stay a federal government problem. Now, one of the more interesting aspects, at least for me, I was curious to see how this would go, was was the convoy itself. And, you know, we had this bizarre mishmash of messaging and spokespeople at the time. We had some people protesting the vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers and others talking about all sorts of COVID conspiracies and people talking an overthrow of government with the Senate and the governor general taking over all, (laughs) all sorts of stuff. And the inquiry heard from Pat King, heard from Tamara Leach and others. Ryan, what did we learn about this movement from the inquiry that we hadn't heard yet? I think the overall picture that I took um, about this movement is that thinking of it as one movement is maybe the, the first mistake we all made. You know, we heard 
sort of a wide uh, view of what was considered a win uh, in terms of you know what it would have taken for them to end the protest. Uh, everything from, like you say, you know, the government resigning and some sort of new, not constitutional, not real Senate governor general trucker governments taking over right down to just a meeting with federal officials. Uh, generally, they wanted all vaccine mandates re removed and all sort of COVID restrictions lifted. But, you know, there was a wide variety of different groups. You do get a sense that the people who started organizing this never got a sense that it would be this big. They never assumed that they would attract this many people to it. They never assumed, I think, that they would be in Ottawa for as long as they did. And I don't think they 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 saw the impact that it would have uh, up front. So I think that was a big issue. And then, you know, one of the concerns I think that, that came up is, you know, why didn't the um, government negotiate with the, the convoy and the organizers? And I think sort of what you heard is that there wasn't a central person to negotiate with. This wasn't a movement with one clear leader or anything like that. Um, and so you, you get a sense that it, it would have been a difficult uh, negotiation to have, even the one deal that we can say that happened, this deal with the, the mayor of Ottawa and Tamara, uh, Tamara Leach, one of the organizers, was instantly denounced by a bunch of the other convoy organizers, most of whom didn't even check with Tamara Leach to see if she had agreed to it before they went out and denounced it as fake news and not real and as a, a scam. So I, I think that's where we got a sense of, of what was going on there. Mm -hmm. I I mean, Chris, that you know, this is a group that is being presented as a coordinated movement to undermine democracy or be a, considered a threat to national security. Did their testimony reflect that at all, or did they try and downplay their aims or their actions? They certainly at no point uh, told the commission that they were a threat. That I can guarantee you. Um, <laughs> I actually think that the, the government and authorities very quickly came to a realization that this was an extremely piecemeal group of varying interests and sometimes conflicting interests, some with much more extreme desires, you know, the, the, that f that notorious now memorandum of understanding that one faction was putting out, right, that was basically demanding overthrow the government or we're never leaving. Whereas another group of, of you know, one can consider milder uh, organizers who really say that they just wanted to meet the government, have their concerns about um, mandates and COVID-19 measures heard, and then they would pack up and leave. But ultimately, what governments and authorities rather at every level of protests across the country realized was that because there was no specific one organizer for any of these groups, um, they feared that negotiating with them, even negotiating a meeting with government officials would fail because if they got those people to agree to leave, they might pack up and leave, but not everyone would, right? The more extreme, more entrenched elements would stick around anyways. So then government ends up with, you know, a rock and a hard place of having met with people that they view as, as you know, uh, let's say unruly elements 
and the convoy protests are ongoing and the problem is still there to a certain extent, right? Um, but to circle back to your question, you know, the, the convoy organizers that we heard there uh, absolutely wanted to downplay for the most part any threat that they thought they posed. They for almost all intents and purposes, spoke of a peace and love protest. That was something that they heard. You know, people were giving each other hugs and making food for each other, et cetera, et cetera. And it was really just kind of a, a tale of two completely different cities where the people who agreed and embraced the cause of the Freedom Convoy had a great time, made new friends, you know, whereas the people in the city who did not embrace the cause, who wore masks and who, who you know, were accepting of COVID-19 measures, well, they didn't feel the same way at all. They felt harassed. They felt intimidated. They had people coming and telling them, take your mask off or trying to rip it off their face even. So it was a tale of two cities. And, and it was very interesting to hear basically two completely different events that if you were to put the convoy organizers testimony on one end, you know, and then the re the, the Ottawa citizens uh, and police testimony on the other end, you wouldn't even think they were talking about the same event. In part two of our interview, we'll look at what security officials told the government about the threat the convoy posed, the politics of invoking the Emergencies Act, and how Justin Trudeau's cabinet justified its actions. 10-3 is produced by Tyler Dawson, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guests, Chris Nardi and Ryan Tumulty. More from them and full coverage of all the testimony of the Emergencies Act inquiry can be found at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.